Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. My name is Judy Forte, and I'm the superintendent of Martin Luther King Jr. National Historic Site. This morning, the exhibition entitled Gulag, Soviet Forced Labor Camps and the Struggle for Freedom was officially opened at the Martin Luther King Jr. National Historic Site. The Gulag exhibit consists of four themes. One, Stalin Gulag. Two, dissidents. Three, after the Soviet Union. And four, the Gulag Museum. The exhibit actually begins at the Park Visitor Center located at 450 Auburn Avenue and ends at the historic museum Fire Station Number 6 located at 39 Boulevard. The Gulag exhibit is representative of the types of injustices that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. brought to the forefront of society during the American Civil Rights Movement of the 1950s and 1960s. One of Dr. King's quote that is extremely appropriate for this international exhibition is, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. For clearly, when there are injustices in place, the integrity and the intent of justice itself is severely sacrificed. The last national park where the Gulag exhibit was displayed was at the Eastern California Museum, co-hosted by Manzanar National Historic Site. Martin Luther King Jr. National Historic Site will host this exhibit through February the 20th, 2008, and then the exhibition will be transported to Eleanor Roosevelt National Historic Site in New York and then on to Washington, D.C. Our Gulag partners at Martin Luther King Jr. National Historic Site that helped us with the exhibit are the International Coalition of Historic Site Museums of Conscious, the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library and Museum, Amnesty International USA, Georgia State University, Eastern National, which is our Park Cooperating Association. And we'd like to give special recognition, which goes to Emory University and its two associate professors who was extremely supportive and involved in the planning and implementation of events and activities surrounding the Gulag exhibition, Dr. Juliet Apkarian and Dr. Matthew Payne. I am also so grateful to the dedicated and committed park staff and others who served on the Gulag interpretive planning and exhibition installation teams. Gulag, Soviet forced labor camps, and the struggle for freedom. As Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, we know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. When you visit the Gulag exhibition, 
take some time to also visit our community. The community where Dr. Martin Luther King was born, where he lived, where he grew up, worked, and is buried. The Martin Luther King Jr. National Historic Site is not only your national park, but it is truly a world treasure. Thank you and good evening. Good evening, everyone. Thank you, Judy. And thank you to everyone for joining us on this very balmy December evening. Hope you didn't bring your coats. You won't need it. I am Karen Ryan, the director of the Human Rights Program here at the Carter Center. And it is my pleasure to welcome you to this very special event, which is the second in this year's conversations at the Carter Center season. The series gives us an opportunity to engage the community on important topics and the work of the Carter Center around the world. But we are, especially wel we are especially welcoming of guests tonight from the Martin Luther King Jr. Center, the National Park Service, including Judy Forte, and uh, Lewis Hutchins and Marty Blatt from Boston, who came all the way from Boston from the Park Service, uh, the International Coalition of Historic Site Museums of Conscience, Amnesty International USA, uh, the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library and Museum, which was one of the organizers of this event, Carter Center guests, and of course our guests from the Atlanta community. Our panel tonight will discuss the suppression of political and religious dissidents from the former Soviet Union in the United, and the United States Civil Rights Movement and the current challenges for human rights movements worldwide, an ongoing concern of the Carter Center. After the panelists' remarks tonight, you will have an opportunity to pose questions. If you have not already done so, please write your questions on cards that have been passed out. I see some have been collected, but you may think of something during the program and pass them through. Now I would like to introduce our panelists as, before I bring them up. Tonight we will share an exercise in memory about two historic moments, the civil rights movement in the former Soviet Union, but also here in the United States. On this panel, we are honored to hear from participants in those movements. Former President Jimmy Carter guided our nation through a critical period for both the United States and its Cold War adversary, the Soviet Union, and managed to help Soviet dissidents advance the cause of freedom while managing other strategic interests of the United States such as nuclear arms reductions talks between the two powers. The legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., represented here tonight by Dr. King's nephew and the president and CEO of the King Memorial Center, Isaac Newton Ferris, led a human and civil rights movement that not only began a transformation toward justice in the United States, but inspired others in their own struggles throughout the world. It all began just blocks from here. Andrew, Ambassador Andrew Young, of course, first and foremost, was one of Dr. King's closest friends and colleagues in the struggle that liberated all Americans. He was also President Carter's ambassador to the United Nations and was a member of Congress and mayor of the city of Atlanta. 
Sergei Adamovich Kovalyov, who we have here tonight, we are honored to have here with us tonight, founded the first Soviet Human Rights Association, the initiative group for the defense of human rights in the USSR. He was arrested in 1974 and tried in Vilnius for anti-Soviet agitation and propaganda. He served seven years in the labor camps, including at Perm 36, and later three years in internal exile in Kolyma. Mr. Kovalyev has been a tireless advocate for the preservation of the memory of the Gulag as a critical part of the contemporary struggle for human rights in Russia. He was one of the founders and leaders of the Memorial Society. Currently, Sergei Kovalyov serves on the boards of directors of the Gulag Museum and the International Coalition of Historic Site Museums of Conscience. Larry Cox, executive director of the Amnesty International USA, leads an organization that has become synonymous with the advancement of the global human dream of liberty. And we are pleasure, we have a, it's our pleasure to have Larry with us to talk about what Amnesty is doing. These four panelists are also either recipients of the Nobel Peace Prize or have a meaningful connection to it. Here on Freedom Parkway, we have two Nobel, Nobel Prizes very close together. The magnitude of this proximity is often forgotten. Dr. King's medal is linked with civil rights, but he spoke in universal terms and strongly supported human rights around the world, even risking domestic political support to do so. President Carter's medal is linked to human rights, but at his inauguration as governor of Georgia uttered the historic words, I say to you quite frankly, that the time for racial discrimination is over. Amnesty International received the award in 1977 for its work on behalf of human rights worldwide. Sergei Kovalyov is sometimes called the heir to Sakharov, the Russian physicist who was honored by the prize in 1975. The Soviet government would not allow Sakharov to travel to Oslo to receive the award, and on the day of the ceremony, Sakharov instead traveled to Vilnius and stood outside the door where Sergei Kovalyov's trial was taking place. These witnesses to history will reflect in this conversation about how determined individuals and communities pushed back against the repression and injustice, how U.S. leadership has in the past and can in the future offer support to such movements and how accounting for and actively remembering our histories can help us find a path to a future of greater respect for human rights. Will the panelists please join us on the stage? Just a note for you, um, we will have translation and we are going to try simultaneous translation to save time and we are um, going to see how it goes. 
we may have to shift to consecutive depending, but um, we are very anxious to hear from Sergei Kovalyev and we will all accommodate. I'd like to begin the conversation by asking President Carter a question. First, the Carter administration, against the backdrop of the 1975 Helsinki Accords, which established human rights as a common commitment among the U.S. and the nations of Europe, struggled with how best to support the growing dissident movements inside the Soviet Union. Many believed that explicit public support for human rights movements helped to embolden the dissidents in the Soviet Union and throughout Eastern Europe. The U.S. negotiated a 1979 swap between two convicted Soviet spies from the US, in the U.S. and five prominent Soviet dissidents that were being held in the Soviet Union. A memo from a White House staffer wrote, the Spies for Dissidents exchange was one of the most politically astute moves the U.S. government has ever made on behalf of Soviet dissidents. The administration's human rights policy has generated worldwide debate on human rights on which dissidents in communist societies have capitalized. President Carter, how did you reconcile the urgent pursuit of arms control and other strategic interests that we had with the Soviet Union with effective pressure on the Soviet government on the issue of the release of dissidents and on Jewish emigration during that time? Well, I first of all want to welcome all of our fellow panelists here. This is a very great honor for the Carter Center to have heroes who were among the dissidents who helped bring freedom to the people of, uh, of Russia. And I also want to uh, thank the others for coming to participate with me. I think it's good at the very beginning to put the uh, situation into context as it existed back in the middle 70s. As many of you will remember, there were two superpowers on Earth, both of them endowed with tremendous nuclear arms arsenals. And we knew that each of us could destroy the other nation and perhaps the entire world if a nuclear arms race materialized in the exchange of weaponry. Uh, I knew that if the Soviets fired nuclear weapons at the United States from their known sites, it would take 26 minutes for an intercontinental ballistic missile once it was launched and we could detect it before it arrived in New York or Washington or wherever. And Brezhnev, the president of uh, Russia, knew the same thing, Soviet Union then. So we were, that was a situation of a very tentative, uh, mutually assured destruction uh, stalemate. And I had to be very careful as president not to precipitate an exchange of those nuclear weapons. The other thing was that we knew that the Soviet Union was an oppressive regime. There were millions of people who were killed under Stalin and his successors. And also there were other millions of uh, freedom lovers who were incarcerated or in prison camps in the northern part of, uh, of the Soviet Union. What constrained the Soviet Union legally was the Helsinki Accords, which were consummated in December of 1975. And uh, there were 35 nations who were signatories of those accords, primarily negotiated between the Soviet Union on the one hand or Canada, the United States, and other countries in Europe, on the other hand. And they, they had uh, 10 provisions uh, involving uh, sovereignty, uh, the inviolability of, of frontiers, territorial integrity, and so forth. What the Soviet Union got, I'm not saying it was good or bad, was the acknowledgment by the rest of the world that, in effect, they had a right to occupy Poland and Hungary and so forth. 
What the rest of the world got, which seemed to be not quite so much, was two provisions, the, the provisions seven and eight. First was respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms, including the freedom of thought, conscience, religion, or belief. That was the seventh provision that the Soviet Union swore to honor. And the other was equal rights and self-determination of peoples. So you see, the Soviet Union was bound then by international law that they would respect human rights. At the same time, we knew that uh, that was going to be a difficult thing. So I issued uh, uh, presidential directives, NSC 30, to the Vice President, the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of Treasury, Attorney General, and the entire gamut of, um, of the American uh, government. And, and it was very brief. I'll, I'll just read a few phrases from it. It shall be a major objective of U.S. foreign policy to promote the observance of human rights throughout the world. And I'll skip on down. It shall be the objective of the U.S. human rights policy to reduce worldwide governmental violations of the integrity of the person that is torture, cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment, arbitrary arrest or imprisonment, lengthy detention without trial, and to enhance civil and political liberties, including freedom of speech, religion of assembly, and also to promote basic economic and social rights, adequate food, education, shelter, and so forth. And I made it clear that this was binding on every agency of the federal government, including every ambassador that I had representing me throughout the world. So the whole world who read this directive, it was made public, knew that a basic premise of the U.S. foreign policy in every nation was the protection and preservation uh, of human rights. And I re also required this entire group to report to me periodically on the full enforcement of this law. So you see that, uh, that this created an inherent conflict between us and the Soviet Union. And very shortly after I became president, uh, a test became there because, uh, because um, Sakharov, who was a noted physicist and who had won the Nobel Peace Prize but couldn't go and pick up his prize, wrote me a letter and I answered him with a handwritten note and told him in effect that I would never forget his plight that the United States of America stood behind him and his desire for freedom, and that this commitment of mine also applied to other uh, dissidents who were in prison in the Soviet Union, including our friend tonight, Sergei. And so I was amazed a few, this is a private letter to uh, Sakharov, I was amazed a few weeks later to see in almost every newspaper in the world and every magazine in the world, Sakharov holding my letter up in front of the camera <laughs> So the entire world could read my pledge to him and others like uh, Sharansky that we would protect their freedom. There was an ancillary problem in the United States, and that was Soviet Jews. We were very insistent that Soviet Jews have a right to immigrate out of the Soviet Union, but they were restrained, and only just a trickle of, uh, of them could come out. Well, I think that our pressure was effective because the first year I was in office, a few thousand Soviet Jews were permitted to leave, and then by 1978, 51,700 Soviet Jews were permitted to leave. So all of we were warned, don't aggravate the Soviet Union because they're so powerful militarily. I felt that it was incumbent on me as the person raising high the banner of human rights to insist on the Soviet Union complying with their promise 
in the Helsinki Accords. And uh, they couldn't publicly disavow their commitment. So it did have an effect. So on one occasion that Karen asked me about specifically, uh, we found that two of the members of the Soviet embassy in Washington were spies. They were proven to be spies. And I didn't want to keep spies in the United States from the Soviet Union, even in prison. So I picked out five prominent dissidents in the Soviet prisons and so forth. And I said, okay, to, to Brezhnev indirectly, I'll swap you your two spies for the five dissidents that represent freedom throughout the world. And that was done. One of them happened to be a Baptist pastor, Georgie Vins. And he came out of the um, prisons with his head shaven. Uh, he was taken to a plane the last day of his imprisonment. He was put on the plane. He wasn't told by his Soviet guards where he was going. And all of a sudden, he found out he was flying to the United States of America and to freedom. And uh, this was a very emotional thing for me. And I never met with Brezhnev throughout my four years in office, whether we were talking about uh, nuclear arms control or whatever, that I didn't bring up the plight of the Soviet dissidents. And he knew it was coming, and he always had a prepared written statement to make to me. He read the statement that I was interfering in inter internal affairs of the Soviet Union. So I, I've given a little bit longer answer, I know, than Karen wanted, but I think it's good for the audience to understand the circumstances that then existed in the mid-'70s down to 1981 when I went out of office. No need to apologize. That was a perfect way to kick us off. And I'd like to pass the microphone to Sergei Kovalyov first to react to President Carter's remarks and to talk about what this meant for them. How did the dissidents perceive the role of the United States during this time? Thank you. At that time I was at the camp and I remember quite well the topics that we discussed. First of all, we talked about Helsinki Agreement we were constantly discussing it. What is it? What is this agreement? Is it a victory of the Soviet diplomacy, which again managed to lie to the West? Or is it a real thing uh, that uh, the uh, Soviet Union uh, swallowed? And the majority of us believe that the third, so-called third basket will not result in anything. The Soviet Union many times signed various agreements but never uh, implemented them. And moreover, in those days, it was very important for us to get information from the newspapers about a certain unusual position and view of President Carter. It was the first time ever when 
a powerful uh, country announced that the human rights is the priority of its foreign policy. I, together with my friends, knew the words of Carter that I cannot send Marines to liberate Russian prisoners, but I'll do everything else in my power. And his words about the flowers that will grow in the cracks of the walls. That was a very important moral support for us. And I would like to emphasize that really it was a first the first and the most uh, valuable and honorable attempt by a leader of a powerful country to uh, announce that human rights is the main priority of his foreign policy. Now, the question is, Will, uh, will and can this priority remain the first priority and important priority? I'm sure that if the policy of Carter would be car were carried on by the other Western countries, we would have lived in a much happier place, in a place uh, which uh, will uh, be moving in the, on the course of progress. Unfortunately, my country is not doing it, and the Western establishment is supporting my country in imitating democracy. And currently these values are a matter of trade and and uh, the matter of negotiations which lead to a deep crisis, which is very dangerous. And that's the, the, the main uh, task currently facing the humanity is to overcome this crisis. Thank you, Sergei for that, and, and I want to come back to you later to elaborate a little bit. Before I do, Ambassador Young, I wonder if you might be able to, to talk to us about your impressions of the time. How, how, how did this play? You were there in the United Nations, you worked with other nations, you could see how the United States, in, uh, you had a front row seat to this, uh, these events. Well, I think that um it was the commitment of President Carter uh, that probably started somewhere uh, 
around the Iowa and New Hampshire primaries, I think, <laughs> where I certainly I started hearing the phrase, uh, we need a government as decent and honorable as the American people. Now, I don't know, that didn't come from any focus group. <laughs> uh, but then when he talked to me about going to the United Nations, um, he said the reason I was trying to get him to ask Barbara Jordan to go, and he said, no, you were with Martin Luther King, and if people are going to take us seriously, it will be because of that association. Uh, he did say also, she certainly is more intelligent, more articulate, <laughs> <laughs> and other than that, she's a far superior person, but uh, you were with Martin Luther King. The other thing was that, that uh, and I, I put a lot of emphasis on this because there's a certain Southern style that is consistent with Gandhi's nonviolence, that you have to give your opponent a face-saving way out. Uh, President Carter had a nice way of, as we say about a diplomat is somebody that can tell you to go to hell in such a nice way that you look forward to the trip. <laughs> uh, and he could, he, could, um, he could tell people rough things in a nice way and, and not be confrontational. We also had, coming out of the Civil Rights Movement, um, a connection from the very time that Martin Luther King issued issued any kind of statement about segregation in the United States. Uh, he included Jews and Christians uh, in the Soviet Union uh, and South Africa. And we, we never made local statements about human rights in the US. And there were two particular people, uh, Alan Lowenstein, uh, who was very active with us in the civil rights movement who came with me to the United Nations. And then there was a, a Pentecostal preacher who spoke Russian. Uh, Al, uh, Olin Peterson, was that right? That uh, at a time when there was a Pentecostal uh, sit-in in a church, uh, Olin uh, went as a pastor uh, who spoke fluent Russian. I think he was president of Middlebury. Uh, and, and there was really a tremendous amount of not judgmental accusation about human rights, but we understand this problem because we have been through it ourselves. And it's much better if you can get it off your hands. And uh, I, I have always given his mother uh, credit for that side of him because she waged a human rights battle uh, in Sumter County when it was probably not quite as bad as uh, the, the gulags, but uh, that was as oppressive a region as I have ever been in. Uh, and um, But still, we always had, once we got out of that, we always had our courts. So I think our civil rights movement never really felt totally oppressed. And in fact, I'm more concerned now uh, than I was back then, because I don't know what happens to the courts anymore. Hmm. That's right. Yeah.
Larry. Larry Cox from Amnesty International. Talk to us about how Amnesty got the, the Nobel Peace Prize in 1977. It was exactly during this period uh, when Sergei was in prison and there was this idea that was taking shape worldwide that human dignity, human freedom was something that all of us should be concerned about. And so Amnesty captured that and brought it forward. Talk to us about what we're, what we're hearing tonight as a, as, a, as a history, but also as a lesson. Wow, this is quite an evening for me. I, I, to be on the panel with people who are, uh, you know, heroes of mine, but also heroes of the human rights movement for so long. From Sergei, who was a, a name that was known to every Amnesty member throughout the United States as if he was a member of their own family. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Andrew Young, who was a human right, we always saw as a human rights fighter, not just as a civil rights fighter. But in particular, to be sitting next to somebody who, in my view, uh, is the person most responsible uh, for uh, the growth of Amnesty International uh, and the human rights, broader human rights movement. Um, than anyone else uh, on the planet is just an incredible uh, sensation, and uh, I uh, I think it in the years uh, in 1976 and in the early 1970s, Amnesty felt literally like its slogan. We we were holding a candle through the barbed wire, but we had no idea if that candle was really uh, being seen or having um, an effect. We had a kind of uh, uh, faith that if we could keep the names alive of the people uh, who were being imprisoned, uh, that eventually uh, the world would have to take notice. If we took human rights seriously, uh, if we told governments that we, the people, were taking human rights seriously, that governments would be forced eventually uh, to have to take them seriously. That was the idea, but it was an act of faith to be honest, uh, which often didn't seem to have uh, uh, anything to back it up. But uh, when we had a president of the United States who began to talk about human rights, who made the kind of statement that was read earlier, um, it was just a tremendous uh, jolt. We, of course, I was the press officer of Amnesty International in this country in 1976, uh, and uh, we took credit for everything that Jimmy Carter said, President Carter said. Um, uh, but the truth of the matter is that uh, President Carter could take credit as well for everything that Amnesty International uh, accomplished. Um, we, the Soviet Union in some ways was the easiest country on which to work for Amnesty uh, because the injustice was so stark and so clear uh, the, uh, they had not learned, as I fear they have now learned in Russia, uh, to muddy the waters by charging people with criminal charges. There was this notorious Article 70 that just said very clearly, we're putting people in jail for anti-Soviet uh, agitation or propaganda. It was so clear. They were the classic prisoners of conscience of which Amnesty spoke. And no one could doubt uh, around the world about the injustice of what they were doing. So in one way, it was the easiest country on which to work. On the other hand, it was the hardest country on which to work because uh, we very seldom 
uh, could feel that we were playing a part in having people uh, released earlier than their sentences. Uh, I think there may have been some cases where people were paroled, but uh, I'm not aware of any time where Amnesty really succeeded in having somebody uh, uh, freed earlier than their sentence. And that was very, very difficult. And uh, uh, we had to find, we, we had to, to hope that somehow uh, the word of, uh, that people around uh, the world, because Amnesty was a global movement, uh, were not forgetting, were remembering that somehow that would be communicated or would get through to the people who were in the gulag, who were in the prisons, and somehow it did. I, I never understood how exactly it did. It, to me, it's one of the mer modern miracles uh, uh, that makes me believe in miracles, that, that somehow people knew. Uh, about amnesty and about what amnesty was doing. Uh, in fact, Sergei w was, in 1974, one of a group of people who proposed to form an amnesty chapter in, uh, in Moscow, in the Soviet Union. And amnesty was very afraid of this. We thought this would put him in even greater danger. Uh, and Martin Ennels, who was the Secretary General of Amnesty, tried to talk uh, the the, the uh, dissidents out of this idea, uh, but if you've ever tried to talk uh, uh, Soviet dissidents out of any idea, <laughs> you will understand that, that it was not successful. They did form a group of amnesty, and they were treated just like any other group because they knew about amnesty. They even knew how it worked, and they were willing to accept the principle that they would work on other countries in their amnesty guys, they would continue, of course, to work uh, on the Soviet Union uh, as Soviet uh, citizens. But uh, this was one of the things that amnesty did in those days. Was somehow it got this message across that there were was a global movement that cared, and it seemed to make a, uh, a, a tremendous uh, a difference, if not in actually being able to open prison doors giving people the hope that the world would continue. Um, and then, of course, as I say, when you began to add to that uh, the U.S. government's power and prestige, you had, I think, the beginning, even though we didn't know it and we could never have dreamed of it, the beginning of the process that would eventually lead uh, to the fall of uh, the gulag system. Um, so uh, what I remember in those days is having that faith, uh, seeing people uh, who believed uh, that it was important for people around the world, not just governments, but for everyone, like the people in this room, uh, to take uh, seriously that people were their brothers and sisters, uh, and then to eventually see how this movement, uh, this idea grew. And again, I, I think I have to give tremendous credit to uh, uh, the person on my right for, for making that a, r a reality and leading us to where we are today. Thank you, Larry. Isaac, the King legacy binds us tonight. The Gulag exhibit is there. We encourage everyone here in Atlanta to see it and to begin thinking about the role of remembering. The King Center is a vital place for remembering. How can we rally our histories to address the challenges we face as a nation today? Um. Actually, it's, it's pretty simple, um, and, and I think that's making sure that we know the history. Uh, for instance, in this country, now we've got a couple of generations that were not here. Uh, 
during the civil rights era. I would imagine that that's probably tenfold in the former Soviet Union where information was suppressed. And so you probably have many generations that don't even appreciate from whence uh, they've come. And that's why we were so happy to have the, the Gulag exhibit in the King Historic Site um, to kind of remind people uh, from whence we've come and to also show where other peoples in the globe have come as well. So I, I think it, it's really simple making sure that, that we know the history. Um, it's a pretty common saying, but, but it's true. Those who do not know the history are doomed to repeat it. Um, and just one final point, I don't think that President Carter, who uh, first off has been our only human rights American president during his presidency and afterwards, um, I don't think he could have done what he did had not the civil rights movement occurred because prior to President Carter, before we worked our problems out here, one of the, the pushbacks from the Soviet Union when we would try maybe to think about confronting them about what was going on, they'd say, well, look at how you treat your American blacks. Who are you to talk to us about the gulags? I, I mean, you, you have your own problems. So I, I, I just want to reiterate, knowing the history, I think is key. That's right, and President Carter, maybe that's a good link to to, to now, and you know, um, this question of leadership and the question of the moral fabric of the human rights movement. During that time in the 70s, a few things were happening uh, that we've talked about. And one of the trajectories that we were on, I think, as a human community was this idea of increasing, building something, building a, a set of norms. Even human rights treaties were being negotiated and agreed to by no, nations. There were sort of rules that were coalescing about how to treat people and what would be the bottom line on human rights. Um, and of course now this is uh, all shattered. Um, the war on terror has created this almost a global battlefield where there are no more rules, it seems. Um, our courts are fighting back, fortunately. Um, and, and that's good news for the United States. But what does it mean um, for the human rights movement? And how, uh, is, how important is American leadership in setting that back on the, the right track? Hmm. <laughs> well, as you know, the um, Gulag Center is just one of uh, a group that have now been chosen throughout the world as repositories of people who were prisoners of conscience and who were punished uh, by depriving them of their basic human rights. There's one in South Africa, of course, and there's one in Poland, and there's one in uh, Chile under Pinochet, and there's, and there's one in Argentina where there were 9,000 young people who were disappeared. And I would guess that in the future, Guantanamo might qualify to be a, a place of, uh, of embarrassment and maybe Abu Ghraib prison uh, in Iraq. But this is an embarrassment 
to people in my country to know that our own nation's government now disavows the basic principles that were so much uh, in the forefront of the world's consciousness uh, back in the late 70s. And, and I, I think that this is uh, something that, that um, is accepted by all too many American citizens. The, the debates now uh, in the presidential campaign, uh, some of the foremost uh, candidates on among one of the party's nominees, I won't say which one, <laughs> are calling for increased torture. Uh, more people ought to be waterboarded. Uh, Guantanamo should be doubled in size, they say, and perpetuated in its existence. It's hard to, to, to know, that, uh, hard to realize that our own government has now disavowed the application of a Geneva uh, restraints on the mistreatment of prisoners of war. We say they no, don't even apply to us. And, I was just reading some of the phrases um, here that carried over from, from the mid-1970s. It shall be the objective of the U.S. human rights policy to reduce worldwide government violation of the integrity of the person, that is, torture, cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment, arbitrary arrest or imprisonment, Lengthy detention without trial. It was inconceivable in those days to even imagine that our own country would be officially espousing and defending that kind of treatment. And, and, and what's happened at the Carter Center in the last four or five years under Karen's leadership is an annual conference where we bring in to this same room uh, I preside along with the United Nations High Commission on Human Rights every year uh, over a, a, a forum that includes about uh, human rights heroes, we call them, we call them defenders of human rights from about 40 nations. And, and they come here repeatedly to tell us how in their own more oppressive government regimes, those regimes use the activities in the United States as an excuse for their governments to take away increasingly their human rights. When 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago, their countries were improving human rights under pressure primarily from Washington. So we face a very serious uh, problem here. And uh, I hope that this forum will be... Uh, significant in reminding Americans what uh, is happening within our own, within our own, within our own uh, among our own people. I, I think that um, the number of those who are uh, abused and incarcerated uh, without trial are almost uh, without ability to count them. And the human rights in many countries are now being lost because of a lack of leadership from a nation that ought to raise high the banner of human rights before all other countries. Those are just my own personal opinions. Yeah. Sergey, if I can ask you to maybe to come back to this, to this question. Tell us about 
President Carter was just talking about um, the global environment for human rights. How is it, how does it look from Russia? How is the human rights movement coping with uh, the current situation in Russia politically, but also the global environment in which they are pushing for more freedom? Some time ago, it seemed that after World War II, United Nations was formed, it seemed that uh, there were uh, guarantees of safety, guarantees of security, and in the UN Charter, it was written down about the value of the human rights, and it was written that the violation of the human rights uh, brought about the horrors of the World War II, which just ended at that time. But it was the period of rosy dreams. Unfortunately, it turned out later that, that the world leaders used these words about human rights dignity and human rights value as a matter of negotiations. And that remains the main challenge for the 21st century. You asked about human rights movement in Russia. Let's talk frankly. Currently, uh, democratic elections are impossible in Russia. There is only a semblance of democratic elections, and uh, as a result, we basically are back to a one-party system. And now we have the leader of the nation who was who for a very long time was begged to uh, remain a president for a third consecutive term. It hasn't happened yet. But keep in mind, but keep in mind that at its own time, nobody uh, wondered what position was held by Joseph Stalin. What was his title? It didn't really matter. He was Stalin. And in Russian we used the word Vost, leader of Führer in German, or Caudillo in Spanish, or in a Duce in Italian. And now we have our own person whose position is called Putin. 
Может ли эта ситуация быть исправлена демократическим образом? Ну, извините меня, господа, будем реалистами. Sorry, but let's be realists. Если в стране вновь проходят выборы, If a country holds elections where 99% of the voters show up at the voting polls, and more than 90% of them vote for a single party, a United Russia and Putin, do Do you need any other proof that, the, that there is no really free will in the country? So what is left? To call Russia to an axe, to to ask Russia to pick up an axe, but we know too well uh, what uh, these bloody uh, revolts lead to. Or we can, we can hope for some processes that were taking place in the Eastern Europe in the 80s. In Eastern Europe, which was Eastern Europe, which was given by the Allies, was given away to the Soviet Union. We are not going to go into details right now, but I would like to remind that that the uh, democracy was brought back in Poland and Czechoslovakia by this small group of uh, intelligence. In Poland, it was committees of COSCOR and uh, Solidarity Trade Union and uh, they uh, convinced, the COSCOR convinced uh, in the need for political demands. And in Czechoslovakia there was a group of 77 headed by Václav Gazek. And then the, uh, as a result of this group, there was the uh, People's Organization People's Front. And this is one of the sources of hope. There is another one which I think is also very important, and that is international solidarity. I remember what are the... Uh, uh, Western uh, dem democracy, Western public did for our country, for my country. Uh, 
And uh, the political leaders such as uh, Carter was drawing their inspiration from this uh, public. And I think that international solidarity and numerous international programs which, uh, including museums and sites of conscience, will uh, find their place in the world. And we should strive to uh, reestablish trust for the universal values. And the last, I would like to say Let's not forget that the horrors that were taking place in Cambodia, uh, the ones that are taking place in Sudan right now, these are the uh, horrible acts of, uh, of the lack of rights. But the prerequisites for such uh, actions are the hypocrisy, the quiet hypocrisy of world leaders who uh, recognize the uh, KGB team as a government of Russia and including uh, them into the group of eight of the world-leading countries and allowing them to do whatever they were always engaged in doing. What, what kind of uh, fight with terrorism we're talking about? Who is fighting terrorism? Have we forgotten history? Have we forgotten who was the greatest terrorist in the world? carrying out the greatest terrorism in the world, who still uses political uh, killings? Uh, where terrorism in Palestine or Northern Ireland comes from? Leaders of my country were funding, were uh, training, and were selling weapons to these terrorists. I think that uh, the United States uh, should bear its own responsibility for, it, for this. Let's remember that Ben Laden was, uh, was, uh, was supported. Uh, it was uh, one of the... Uh, uh, people fighting on, on the side of U.S. Uh, and as a result, what happened? Uh, he became a terrorist. And we should not, that's what we should remember and not forget about. Thank you, Sergey. A lot to think about. Um, we're going to turn to questions now. I have some questions here. Um, for various panelists, and, and we'll be able to continue, but I wanted to not lose the chance for some of the written questions to, to because I think they're related to what each the panelists have been talking about. Um, 
the fabric, the moral fabric of the human rights movement requires that we return to rules, as we've discussed. One question is addressed to Amnesty International and the Carter Center. How does the Carter Center and Amnesty plan to address the outsourcing of torture, unlike the gulags and concentration camps are now? These operations are often hidden and hard to identify. How can we bring hopes to prisoners detained in secret camps? And I'll throw that to Larry. Well, I think we have uh, a huge responsibility um, uh, and a huge problem. Uh, I don't think the problem is that the, the, that the situation is hidden. I think the problem is that it's not hidden and yet nothing is done about it. Uh, we know about it. We know what's happening. Uh, journalists as well as human rights groups like Amnesty and Human Rights Watch and others have documented. There's no doubt of what uh, uh, is being done, uh, not only by the U.S. government, but by other governments as well. Um, the problem is precisely how do we uh, revive, uh, how do we dig down deeper and find again uh, uh, this kind of uh, moral outrage that was the source of the power of the, the human rights movement. That's what's most dispiriting. If you go to see a film like Rendition, uh, this film that was shown uh, is still playing in theaters, and you see uh, on the screen the images of uh, someone who has been rendered, sent over to Egypt uh, to be tortured with U.S. complicity, you are one hand watching a film uh, which is a form of entertainment, and at the same time you are watching something which has actually happened. And yet people walk out of the theater and we go back to our lives and we act as if this is something that we can all live with. So I think the challenge for Amnesty International and for all human rights groups now is how, how do we, it's not a problem of uncovering or, or uh, documenting, we have the documentation, but how do we get the people uh, around the world and in this country in particular uh, to feel that there's something that can be done to stop it. Uh, because we, this has been going on for years, that what's eroded the idea of human rights is that you have, just it's the opposite of what I was talking about earlier when I was talking about the tremendous advances we made under President Carter's leadership. But now you have the opposite effect, which is the more people see a government which is openly defending the violations of human rights which is complicit with other governments which are violating human rights, and nothing happens. No one is held accountable for it. No one, uh, the more you begin to feel like, well, there's nothing you can do. Uh, and somehow we have got uh, to uh, uh, demonstrate that uh, we can, that we still have the power to turn this around. And that is the challenge. And, and I, you know, I, we, at Amnesty are, are determined to, uh, to reach out in a much more aggressive way than we've ever reached out because we, 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 we don't, we're not looking right now to the U.S. government to, to, to solve it. We're looking to the people in this room to solve it. We're heading towards the 60th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. We're working with this group called the Elders, which I think uh, you know, President Carter is one, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not old enough to be an elder, but uh, 
the, uh, uh, w w but the, there's an attempt to get a, a billion people to, re to not just sign up again to the Universal Declaration, but to rededicate themselves uh, to, to the values in the Universal Declaration and then to make it real. I don't know any other way to turn this situation around but through the power of people uh, to, do, uh, to make their voices heard. And, and that's what we're, we're trying to do. Um, because if we don't, I really fear that the advances that we have made uh, on every front, uh, both in this country and around the world, uh, will continue to uh, deteriorate. And uh, the, the things that people sacrificed so much, both in the civil rights movement, that people died for, uh, that people endured incredible pain for, as in the gulag, and then uh, people like Sergei Kalyov, uh, will, uh, will begin to, those victories that that suffering brought will begin to be lost. Just to answer the part of the question about the Carter Center, if I could. Yeah. Um, President Carter mentioned the forum that we have here for human rights defenders. I, uh, we believe this is critical, that um, one of the jobs that we have, I remember President Carter, the first time we gathered this group in 2003, our Kenyan friend said to us, um, we, we don't really need you guys to really talk to our governments that much anymore. <laughs> it used to be that kind of, uh, of action that we would take. We need you, Americans, to talk to your people and to your government. We need you to communicate how these policies are affecting us. Um, so we took that to heart in designing our program and our, one of the, the things that we really hope to do is to help human rights defenders tell their story. Because if it's Pakistan, you know, what's incredible is that the lawyers, the human rights defenders who for 20 years have been building a legal system in the, in the heart of the Muslim world, a secular uh, system of rules, rule of law. And right now, it, it, it's a defining moment. Will that, that hard work be crushed? Um, right now, the Pakistani judges and lawyers are still in jail, but the political operatives are not, and they're, they're making their choices. This is a global question. Human rights defenders in every place are building legal systems. They are fighting their own fight, and we think it's our job to help them do that because they always tell us it's not the Marines uh, that are going to do this, it is us. So to give the platform uh, to them to speak is, is how we're trying to, to, to help, whether it's torture or, 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 or what. Um, uh, Karen, yes. just as a quick caveat Please. to that. Um, also, I, I think what you've got to, to address also is what we at the King Center refer to as the fear factor. And we try to address that by simply helping people to accept people that are different than they are. Mm -hmm. Because Larry, the reason why they're leaving rendition and you're not seeing the moral outrage is because people in their minds are, are making a trade-off. They're saying, okay, we will accept this because we want to be safe. And, and that's a misnomer that has been perpetrated on the American people uh, to, to not only deprive us of our rights, but deprive other people of their rights. So we've got to deal with that fear factor as, as well. Absolutely. Ambassador Young, you, thank you. Thank you, Isaac. 
you travel, you, are, you spend probably more time in Africa, I think, than you do on this side of the Atlantic. And as you know, those, those ideals of democracy, transparency, good governance, human rights are trying to be born and take root. They're there. The movements are very much alive. How do you see this? Well, it depends on where you're looking. I, I think the biggest problem we have in, in Africa right now is size. When I hear people talk about Darfur, there are many, many problems, but even those who want to help are, are uh, stifled by geography. Uh, that uh, the Congo, uh, you just can't, I mean, there, there are terrible human rights violations going on. Uh, and um, they're scattered around the jungles of the horrific abuse of women. Uh, we, we went through the period of the child soldiers uh, in West Africa. All of those things are, are horrid. Uh, at the same time, you have a country like Rwanda uh, coming through a genocide uh, and healing in a decade. Uh, you have a Tanzania that has united 123 different tribes uh, into one unified government without any difficulty in the last 50 years. Uh, well, without any violence or, or oppression. Uh, you have Nigeria, that's 150 million people uh, where they're, they're, they're trying to uh, hold together countries that are half Christian and half Muslim. And the thing that makes me most anxious about that is some of my aggressively evangelical Christian friends uh, who are, are provoking uh, in some of the areas of the North. So the, the world is, the world is worse off because we know everything that's going on. Uh, we didn't used to know this much, uh, and we didn't have to. We didn't have to think about it, but it's it's uh, so broad scale. Uh, I think that's why institutions like the Carter Center and like the King Center uh, and Amnesty. Uh, I, I should say that that uh, when I was at the UN, uh, quite often before I'd go on a trip, somebody from Amnesty would give me a. Uh, just a list of names of people who were in prison that I should ask about. Uh, but the problems are, are the African problems uh, are on such a large scale, just any kind of governance, any kind of communication, even when you have leaders who are willing. Now that, that's another long discussion because I think you see um, mercenaries uh, involved in all of these. And instead of being poor, Africa is enormously wealthy. Mm -hmm. And with the, the child soldiers, the, the motivating factor there was the diamonds. Uh, and uh, everywhere in, in the Delta, Niger Delta, uh, the problems are the distribution of, of benefits of oil. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's far more complex now. 
uh, and we, we're not sure. And I think the reason, one of the reasons why the U.S. gets frustrated with the United Nations uh, is that for us, peace and human rights is basically security. Uh, but for the rest of the world, uh, peace means uh, order or food or uh, something other than security. And so, well, yeah. it's, it's just, it's, we're, 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 not, we're not near the end. We're just beginning to understand the problems. Thank you. Did you want, Larry, did you want to add? President Carter. Why do you think it's important to remember? The Gulag exhibit is here. The Carter Library has fantastic, if you haven't seen it, fantastic panel, in fact, uh, our exhibit. In fact, the reason I work here is because in 1987, I saw the Camp David uh, uh, video um, and the Panama Canal, and I said, that's the kind of American, leader, American role in the world that I want to be a part of. Um, why is remembering important, um, and how can it help us in this time as we're, we're struggling with all these issues? Well, I, I listened with great care to what Larry said a while ago, and, and that is the frustration that we feel in knowing. Now, as, as Andy also said, we know too much. We, we know that... Um, Prisoners are incarcerated now under the control of the United States without any charges made against them for years and years, without any access to lawyers, with the absence of habeas corpus, which was originated back in England 500 years ago and has never before been questioned. These kind of concerns are very troubling to us. The fact is now that in our government, the administration and also the Congress have become immune to the um, tragedy of human rights violations under the aegis of, of security. And we say that in order for us rich folks to be secure, uh, we can deprive others of their basic rights. And that includes uh, people who appear to be from the Middle East or those others who are relatively unknown as far as their facial characteristics or race are concerned. And I think there's only, there are only two, three ways that this can be corrected. One is to remember the history of uh, even grosser persecutions. Uh, I remember when I was elected president and Andy went to the United Nations, almost every um, it, government in Latin America was a dictatorship. Uh, Peru and Ecuador and, and Brazil and Chile and Paraguay and, and Argentina and so forth. Uh, we introduced human rights and the people rose up demanding their basic human rights, and now all, most all of them are democracies. It, 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 it's changed, and it's a subtle 
uncontrollable change that has to come from the people themselves. And, and in our country, I think that the sterling, uh, unshakable commitment of Amnesty International, for instance, is the greatest beacon that, on which we can depend. Uh, Amnesty never wavers in, in their protection of basic human rights, whether they're in uh, prisoners taken by America and, and, and rendered to countries where they'll be tortured under our aegis, or whether they are still uh, in the Soviet Union, or whether they're judges in Pakistan, uh, amnesty never wavers. So I think that's the second thing, is, is the history and the preservation of the memory of the gross abuses, the, the sterling character of uh, organizations like Amnesty that never waver. And the third thing is to change in the attitude of, of the American citizens, a majority of the American citizens. And, and as long as we look with favor on the candidates for the next presidency, they say that they're going to preserve the present status of violating human rights, then um, the prospect is not hopeless, but it's dismal. And it took even longer than that to change when Andy Young and Martin Luther King Jr. and, and others uh, made the rest of us realize we were making a mistake and were ashamed. At the end of uh, the Civil War in 1865, for almost 100 years after that, the American population accepted the so-called separate but equal provision. It was separate, but it certainly wasn't equal. It was, it was legalized congressional Supreme Court endorsed racism. And, and there was a few champions like Andy and, and Martin Luther King Jr. and others that, that changed the consciousness of our country. And I hope that something will come along or somebody will come along that will change the consciousness of the general public of America. Um, I would never have been considered as a possible president had it not been for Martin Luther King, Jr. There hadn't been a, another president from the Deep South for over 140 years. And I was considered because there was an enlightenment of, of the uh, South and the appreciation from the rest of the country that gave me that opportunity. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a, a tidal wave of change to realize that, that uh, human rights basically uh, created our nation. As I said in one of my speeches as president, we didn't create human rights. Human rights created America. I have to hope we can remember that in the future. question for Sergei Kovalyevin, and if anyone else wants to comment on this, because there's a lot of experience on this panel about this. What could the United States have done differently to soften the transition period for average people in the former Soviet Union? We talked about private privatization. This may be an, an issue also for other countries. Um, what could have been done differently that might have improved the chances for Yeltsin to succeed so that we wouldn't be facing regression 
on democracy in Russia now? I would like first to say a few words about memory. A long time ago, when the society memorial was formed in the Soviet Union, we were consumed with the uh, notion of historic memory. We uh, didn't want to forget the Stalin period. Now, to my... I'm disappointed to see that we are not given a chance to forget what, ha what happened. In Germany, people were surprised and amazed, uh, were surprised and were asking themselves, how could we have not seen those uh, concentration camps? And there was a sense of uh, national guilt, not legal guilt, but just moral guilt. And I know that many of my American friends uh, remember uh, the slavery in America. They feel it as their own guilt. And in my country, the top leaders and, and mass media, especially uh, all TV stations, are telling us repressions, persecutions. What are we talking about? It's uh, it passed. Let's remember uh, our uh, wonderful history. Let's remember our uh, military victories. Let's remember uh, the period of industrialization when Stalin uh, proved himself to be a great manager, a great business manager. And that's what is now being our national memory. And so to your question, what America, and in fact America did a lot for us, and I talked about it already, I talked about the American society and West American public and Western public in general helped direct our perestroika. Uh, it steered it in the direction in which Gorbachev uh, was not planning to steer it to. And so 
your question, what should we expect from the American public now and from the American political leaders? It's very simple. Speak the truth. Don't lie. <laughs> when the Secretary of State Colin Powell publicly announced that there are people who believe that uh, Russia turned away from the path of democracy, but it's not true. Overcoming difficulties and challenges, Russia is constantly moving towards democracy. And once I hear that, I have a question. America is such a vast country. It's impossible for the Secretary of State of such powerful country to be plain stupid. I can't believe it. But if he's not stupid, then he's lying. But is it good? I think American people don't like to be lied to. There's a question here about the role of, of corporations and the business world. And, and Ambassador Young, you talked about the complexities of the, the age we're living in. And, and Larry talked about the new ways that governments uh, repress human rights through administrative measures, through new tricks of the trade. Uh, it is a new time, and it requires new thinking. How can business, uh, and this is connected to the last question, because the privatization certainly did cannibalize uh, the Soviet Union in a way that has been very, very confusing and complex to manage. How can corporations uh, really lead and be held to a certain standard um, of conduct? I think that um, we have, this too is one of the spin-offs of our civil rights movement, mm -hmm. that um, we held corporations accountable. In fact, we found it easier to hold a corporation accountable than a government. To change a government, you have to have some 50-60% of change in opinion. But if you can impact the corporation's profits uh, 3 to 5%, you get their attention. And I think that uh, people around the world are learning that. They're also learning that um, Corporations are a powerful source for good. Uh, I don't know the, the guy's name, but if you'll excuse the, this is his term. I do more good for more people by being a greedy SOB uh, than uh, in Mexico uh, because I employ 300,000 people uh, than people who are giving charity in Africa. Um, I have tried to challenge, well, Coca-Cola, for instance, is the largest employer on the African continent. 
And I, I was thrilled to go to Tanzania to see that the Coca-Cola Bottling Company with the Tanzanian owner uh, getting involved in the environment and especially in terms of water conservation, uh, clean water in addition to the stuff they were selling. Uh, but uh, he'd, planted, uh, he'd planted 25 million new trees. Uh, and, uh, and it was, I, I don't know where this was coming from, uh, but um, corporations also are people. Uh, our own human rights movement here in Georgia, I don't think it could have happened without Mr. Woodruff and J. Paul Austin uh, and Coca-Cola because uh, P Paul Austin had been in South Africa in the 40s and he came back to Georgia in the 60s, 50s and 60s and he was determined that Georgia would not go the way to, of South Africa. So I, I, I have a very uh, hopeful, um, well, that's my business now, uh, trying to make uh, corporations uh, socially responsible. Uh, and sensitive, uh, and it, it's it, it's you get involved in all kinds of relativities, uh, and I, I I catch more flack for uh, you know trying to put Walmart stores in cities uh, than I did marching sometimes, uh, but I I I I keep a simple view of my work. Uh, in human rights is feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, healing the sick, setting at liberty those who are oppressed. Uh, that was Jesus' original message. It's also the question you're asked in the judgment. Uh, so that if, if, if this is leading toward feeding the hungry, uh, or clothing the naked, or healing the sick, then uh, it's something, however complex it might seem, uh, we probably ought to pursue mm -hmm. because um, I don't think governments right now have the resources nor the technology. I just, just take one, one simple, maybe the human rights revolution in Africa is probably most uh, powerfully generated by the cell phone. Everybody's got a cell phone in Africa. Uh, and, um, and, and, and that's a revolution, and that's, uh, that's, that's kind of a corporate revolution. Mm -hmm. Larry, yeah. Amnesty has done some work in this area. Shed some light on this topic for us. Well, well I think uh, uh, that Ambassador Young hit the nail on the head when he said that we have to hold everyone accountable for human rights. Uh, uh, and that includes corporations. And I think that's increasingly what, what the human rights movement is, is beginning to understand. Uh, I think that we also have to understand uh, the real meaning of human rights. I think it's something that we take for granted that we have always understood it and we do understand it. Um, but if, particularly in this country, we've often understood a distorted meaning of it. By that I mean we've understood human rights only in terms of civil and political rights. And we haven't understood it in terms of also economic and social rights and uh, the indivisibility of those rights, that they're, they're connected. To go back to your original question about the transition, um, I, I think if, if we had, there's a great danger 
uh, of also uh, defining democracy in such a superficial way that we undermine that concept as well. Um, because you cannot have true democracy in a country where you have a tremendous inequality of economic wealth. Uh, you, if you really want to have democracy, If you really want to have democracy, you've got to address the fact that people cannot live lives of true freedom and dignity if they're poor. And, uh, and uh, they cannot li live in a society where certain people who have uh, tremendous wealth can therefore uh, determine the policies of that, of that government. And I think that's, that's true in, in, in Russia today. I think we see a tremendous, uh, 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 you know, accumulation of wealth. Um, in the Gulag exhibit, there's a uh, there's a, a, a poster about the number of millionaires and billionaires in in Russia today being second only to the United States, um, and that 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 raises a question about what what kind of real democracy is possible in that in that situation uh, where you have tremendous this tremendous inequality. So I think. Uh, we have to get back to fighting for uh, the real meaning of human rights, uh, the indivisibility of rights, uh, and that means, and Amnesty is beginning to do this. We, we're taking up uh, uh, increasingly uh, the fight uh, the under, for all human rights, including the right uh, to a decent income, the right to shelter, the right to, uh, uh, well, I guess it's along the lines of, of, uh, of uh, Jesus there that you uh, mentioned, uh, yeah, who, who's also a hero of mine. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but but we, we, but really it goes back to the original vision of human rights. Um, if you go back and read the Universal Declaration instead of just endorse it, uh, and a vision that was deliberately uh, distorted in this country by the denial, and we still to this day uh, are uh, at best ambivalent and often uh, openly uh, opposed to uh, the idea of economic and social rights. And this country has paid, I think, a terrible price for that, uh, that, uh, that division. Larry, you've woven these together very well. And I think to conclude, uh, um, the Universal Declaration's 60th anniversary has been mentioned. This is the year. We all must think about it because it really is in danger. Last September in this room, Louise Arbor, the High Commissioner for Human Rights, said that declaration could not be uh, negotiated at this time in history. That's how bad it is. We have to, to go back to it. The other thing that we talked about in September was the role of faith communities, and, and many of us have, have talked about that this evening. Um, faith communities... Individuals and communities of faith have, an, have the most powerful possibility in this country to go into their communities and ask the question, are we as a community informing ourselves about human rights? Are we learning about it and are we speaking for it? Um, that was the message our for, of our forum in, in September and I think we've, we've heard a bit of that tonight. I would like to very much thank, first and foremost, Sergei Kovalyov, for coming, um, for his courage. For what he represents, for what he represents,
for the human race, hard work, cor- courageous determination um, for the rest of us. To Isaac Newton Ferris, who has represented the King Center here tonight. To Ambassador Young, who has meant so much. Who, Ambassador Young, who has meant so much to all of us as Americans. To President Carter, I can't repeat what Larry, <laughs> how Larry described how much you mean to all of us and to Larry Cox and Amnesty International. Thank you. This has been a podcast from the Carter Center, online at cartercenter.org.